You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Okay, I think we'll get started. Uh, I wanted to welcome you all tonight to the third lecture in our series on 1918 and the New Europe, uh, which is part of the International History Seminar Series. Uh, I'm Molly Pucci, one of the organizers of the series. I teach uh, 20th century European history here at Trinity and, and head the International History and Phil program. Um, it's my great pleasure to introduce um, Mark Cornwall, who is a professor of modern European history at the University of Southampton. Uh, <laughs> professor Cornwall is a specialist in the field of East Central European and Czech and Slova uh, Yugoslav regions in particular. Uh, his work seeks to understand the rise and fall of 20th century Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia. Um, his many book projects include books on the collapse of Austro-Hungarian Empire, including the undermining of Austro-Hungary and the last years of Austro-Hungary. His most recent monograph is called The Devil's Wall, the Nationalist Youth Mission of Heinz Ruthna. It's on the impact of the Great War on a generation of Sudeten German young men in interwar Czechoslovakia up to the Munich crisis in 1938. His current book project is a history of treason in the late Habsburg Empire, which will come out with Oxford University Press. So welcome, Professor Cornwall. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me, uh, Molly and Bolach. Um, I'm very conscious that this is the third in your series of lectures. I have no idea what the other two talked about. Um, I think roughly we won't be saying exactly the same thing, but it means if you have been to the two other lectures, then perhaps this is a good one to um, come to after the, after the other two. I don't know. I have no idea. So this is just my own take on the, um, the collapse of the Habsburg Empire. And um, as Molly says, I should be kind of getting us into thinking about Czech and Yugoslav examples, particularly. I think that's what I was kind of my remit. That's what my remit was to, to put those ideas across to you. Um, so we'll be going kind of deep into, into that um, subject. Um, so we're going to start with um, a Czech example. Um, in the autumn of 1918, a new play by a Czech author was being performed in one of the main theatres in Prague. Its title was The Night in the Bastille, and some Czech theatre-goers may have expected a melodrama, a, may, a few may even have, even have known that the author, Karol Mechirsch, who you see here, uh, was a journalist who'd shown little sympathy for the Habsburg Empire during the war. And one of his plays, entitled Emperor, had been banned a year earlier. Actually, that play was about Napoleon, but, and he wrote quite a bit about Napoleon, but it was banned even so. In fact, The Night in the Bastille was not a melodrama, it was a Rococo comedy about the antics of the French mistress of Louis XV, Madame de Pompadour. Metchish, in his fictional writings, often inclined to light comedy or satire. But he was also a serious journalist, later a diplomat, and his Czech patriotism is revealed by the fact that, after the war, by 1919, he was co-opted as a delegate to the first revolutionary parliament of Czechoslovakia. Now, I've begun this lecture with Mechir's obscure play, which it's very hard to find. I don't know whether it was performed very much after 1918. I've begun it because it introduces us with a hint of irony to the whole idea that the wartime Habsburg Empire was a prison or a Bastille. This metaphor, suggesting that despotism reigned in Austria-Hungary, akin to the late 18th century France, was not something suggested suddenly during the First World War. Already before 1914, in Croatia, for example, there was talk of the Habsburg justice system there resembling a Croatian Bastille. In other words, even in peacetime, and I should be stressing this as we go along, even in peacetime before 1914, governance in some parts of this empire was thought despotic or unjust. The rule of law, the so-called Rechtsstaat in German, was seriously in doubt. Later in the war itself, this idea gained much more traction. In January 1918, one Czech politician who'd been locked up for three years 
without trial, <coughs> gave a dramatic speech to the Austrian Parliament. Václav Klovac, based on his own experience in prison, um, quoted Jean-Jacques Rousseau at the Habsburg regime, and he said, you can send me ten times to the Bastille, but I will ten times and forever more cry out the word freedom. <coughs> now, some of you may know that quote. I've tried to ask French historians about it, and nobody seems to be able to find it in Jean-Jacques Rousseau's writings. But if you do, you can tell me afterwards. But it may just be apocryphal and made up at the time. But it was after the war and after the empire's collapse that the prison metaphor really gained momentum in some of the successor states, these states which um, after, the, after the empire, especially in Czechoslovakia. This reflected the flat fact that by the early 1920s there was a special burst of publishing of Czech memoirs about the war. Whether or not they were officially sponsored, many were, the purpose was to explain and legitimise the recent national trauma with an uplifting narrative from darkness into light. The most prominent memoirs, of course, were those celebrating the work of Czech emigres in the West, led by Tomasz Masaryk, president, president of Czechoslovakia, and Edward Benesch, or the colourful exploits of Czechoslovak legionaries in Bolshevik Russia. If you go to second-hand bookshops in Czech Republic, there's always a standard enormous mass of books about the Czech Legion, novels, etc. But a close second in these ego documents were those describing the trauma of Austrian persecution on the home front. One list of such memoirs from 1923 already suggested well over 70 major Czech publications on this theme. And here the metaphor of the Bastille was very striking, because during the war, many of the most notorious Czech traitors or martyrs had been held in the military court prison in Vienna, here we see it, and in many memoirs it was nicknamed the Viennese Bastille, or the notorious Tower of Death for the Condemned. This is um, one of these memoirs which is actually called In the Tower of Death, um, by somebody who was locked up for several years, and here is his cell. Now these type of memoirs described at length the insecurity, the sadism, even the torture which some prisoners experienced in solitary confinement. And in turn, this became the standard trope for how Czechs or other citizens had experienced wartime Austria-Hungary. One British historian, Julie, wrote soon after the war about a reign of terror during the last years of the empire. So clearly, it was this which had doomed the Habsburg monarchy. Its peoples had been eager to leave the Habsburg prison, or to twist the metaphor, in the end, at a key moment, the peoples had stormed the Bastille and achieved their liberation. Now, in the rest of this lecture, I want to dissect this myth a bit further, take you a bit further into the Czech and South Slav world, if you'll permit me, um, to probe why in 1918 different peoples were encouraged or chose to exit from this multinational empire. And of course, this has a topicality in 2018. Though we might hesitate to exaggerate the comparison, we can observe in the current trauma over Brexit, a divided nation which is heading for the exit from another multinational structure. Amid the hopes and fears about Brexit, there has also been violent rhetoric on a par with the propaganda that circulated at the time of the Habsburg monarchy's collapse. You'll recall perhaps the British Foreign Secretary's, God help us, recent language, I quote, if you turn the EU club into a Soviet prison, the desire to get out won't diminish, it will grow. As in the current Brexit chaos, so in Central Europe a hundred years ago, there were a mass of conflicting expectations which drove human behaviour, some optimistic about the future, some pessimistic. And I think exploring these contradictory expectations helps us understand the exit dynamics of 1918. But of course it should also caution us against adopting a one-sided nationalist narrative of the kind that dominated after the war in Austria-Hungary's successor states. With hindsight, we can do what is currently impossible with Brexit. We can make some fair judgments about which expectations were realised after 1918 and which were not. Perhaps predictably, the post-Habsburg future was not what many expected. The rhetoric had been ramped up, 
there could only be disappointment in the post-war era when it did not match reality. So different expectations and different exits are my key themes today in order to focus on and explain the Austro-Hungarian domestic collapse. And I can certainly talk about the more foreign, foreign dimensions as well, but I'm, I'm going to focus on the domestic side in this lecture. And I'm going to concentrate how, how those, how those, I'm going to concentrate on how these hopes and fears played out, especially in the Czech region, up in Bohemia, up in the north there, and in the South Slav lands down in the south. These were regions whose secession, I would say, was critical, even necessary, for the monarchy's disintegration. They also witnessed the most idealistic nationalist agendas and produced on the European map the radically new states of Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia. But alongside this main focus on 1918, I want also to think a little bit about the long durée as befits a centennial assessment. Some historians recently have argued that it was chiefly the crisis of the Great War that destroyed the Habsburg Empire. And in this argument, the empire pre-1914 was not in decline or even in crisis. If there was any crisis, it was a crisis of growth, as it successfully negotiated stages in social and political modernization. As Peter Judson might argue, and you've heard him two weeks ago perhaps, it was, on, it was an ongoing successful experiment for many of its peoples. I accept Judson's radical adjustment to the teleological narrative of decline, which so dominated 20th century historiography. But I'm rather more pessimistic th than him. Um, I do not feel that the war alone can explain the exits of 1918. As with Brexit, so with Austria-Hungary, there existed a long history of serious complaints about the supranational structure. Many of these were deep-seated, unresolved criticisms, very deep-seated, and in the right circumstances, these criticisms could be reactivated by political activists. The nationalist rhetoric of 1918 was exaggerated, as we'll see, but it drew on embedded tropes which had been laid down for at least one or two generations, and they were understood by much of the national audience, and I think that's very important to realise. Uh, the war years certainly gave a new meaning to these national narratives, and these narratives then continued across the watershed of 1918 into the 1920s with extra intensity. So we're going to look to start with just a kind of thinking about what I might call conditional and unconditional exits. Um, perhaps there should be a question mark on that. Um, to understand the rationale behind this exodus of peoples, we need to ask when the key decisions were taken, why they were taken, and by whom? And we might just throw in here, uh, throw in here the question, who were the murderers of Austria-Hungary? That's a question which I heard Professor Robert Evans um, pose a week ago at a conference. And he ended up saying, well, everyone. It was like, it was like um, uh, murder on the Orient Express. Everyone did it, in fact. Everyone, everyone's, everyone had a knife. But were these decisions, for example, taken by small nationalist cliques, or were the events of 1918 akin to a series of democratic explosions, as you might think if you looked at some photos or films of the period? I mean, here are, here are two shots of the period. One is from Ljubljana, one is from the Czech capital, Prague. There's quite a famous film which was made, also in a Czech film in 1928, which was about the revolution of 1918, and it is all about the masses out on the streets, basically. Uh, Rather, rather male film, one has to say, you have to kind of search for the women in it, but it is, um, it is suggesting a kind of popular revolution. Certainly also, we should throw in here, how far were these individuals in control of events? What was the agency of particular groups? Throughout 1918, many people spoke of being overwhelmed by the pace of change. One Czech politician, for example, in Parliament said, any day a storm may come which will sweep everything away and create a totally different picture. What we can say from the outset is that the exits from the Habsburg monarchy were staggered. Some regions or national leaders led the way, and I would say notably Czech politicians and intellectuals, some copied by example, and some were forced down that route due to the circumstances of a mass exodus 
by late October 1918. And among these, the ones who, who were forced down the road, I would put the democratic leaderships in German, Austria, and Hungary. They may have been the first ones to actually announce a kind of national self-determination, but it's very, very late compared to what I'm going to be telling you about. A second general truth here concerns the reasons behind each regional exodus from the empire. In each case, a major motivating factor was that of insecurity, a belief by national leaders, backed by many war-weary citizens, that their future was not safe in the hands of the Habsburg imperial regime, that only new state structures could provide real security in an uncertain post-war world. But alongside this hard-headed discourse about insecurity, which came straight out of the wartime horrors, as we shall see, there also ran certainly a more positive and visionary narrative, perhaps unlike Brexit. According to this, now was the time for the peoples of Austria-Hungary to assert their right to self-determination. And in 1918, of course, this slogan sounded fully of the moment. It was propagated from the Bolshevik East by Lenin the Bolsheviks and from the West, a capitalist West by Woodrow Wilson and then the Allies. For many imperial subjects, this had a strong mythical resonance. It suggested the fulfillment at last of those historic national missions which supposedly had been crushed or obstructed over the centuries by the oppressive Habsburg monarchy. And if we look firstly, think particularly about Czech leaders during the end of the war, for Czech leaders, theirs was a powerful narrative of national liberation preached since the 1848 revolution. The Czech nation had supposedly existed for centuries. And to paraphrase um, para uh, František Palacký, who you see on the left here, the, Czech, the big Czech patriot of the mid-19th century, if Austria failed to satisfy the Czechs, they would go on to outlive her. I'm paraphrasing. <coughs> For South Slav leaders in the south of the empire, Croats, Serbs, Slovenes, this historic trajectory existed too, but in a more complex form. Some Croat politicians for a generation had been uh, going on about the tradition of historic Croat state right, that there was there had always been this Croat state and um, a Croat-Croatian medieval kingdom, etc., in Croatia, too, there lingered the memory of Eugen Kvaternik, the visionary who in 1871 had risked everything, raised a revolt to attempt full Croatian independence. And it was put down very brutally. Uh, basically, they're all massacred. So that was a kind of a warning of what not to do, in a way. Um, some Serbs, in turn, might aspire to the resurre resurrection of a medieval Serbian kingdom, especially with 20th century Serbia as an example, independent state. Or at least some Serbs record the historic privileges granted by the Habsburgs to Serb settlers in the old military frontier zone. In contrast, any Slovenian historic consciousness was far more recent. It drew on the experience, the myths of national discrimination over the past half century. Anyway, out of this fluid mass of myths and insecurities, there would coalesce the ideal of some South Slav unity, some Yugoslav unity, some idealistic Yugoslav solution for the south of the Habsburg Empire. It then needed, though, the unique circumstances, this chaos of 1918, to push this solution in a radical direction. But until the last year of the war, the idea of some unconditional exodus from the Habsburg Empire was not at all common. It had little support in the empire itself, nor was it encouraged per se by any of the belligerent great powers. The people who did back an unequivocal exit were that small group of um, politicians, and again mostly Czech or South Slav, who from 1914 had burnt their bridges by fleeing the empire and um, uh, uh, moving to France or Britain. From the start, these emigres took a radical stand, believing on the basis of long pre-war experience that the monarchy could not be reformed or restructured. It had to be destroyed. So I've just got a few examples here. For example, uh, on the left, the maverick Czech leader, Tomasz Masaryk, 
in the pre-war decade before 1914, he was increasingly alienated from the monarchy. He concluded that Austrian policy at home and abroad was autocratic and dangerous to Czech interests. And this stance was only confirmed when um, Austria began a war on the side of Germany in 1914. Another leading emigre, who's kind of my favourite at the moment, is this Croatian lawyer, much less well known, but anyway, Croatian lawyer Hinko Hinkovic. This is his passport photograph. Here you see him in London at a, at a rally for the oppressed Yugoslavs, who was a lawyer. Very, um, so I'm always very interested in lawyers. Um, I suddenly realised that um, law, uh, researching the history of law can be really fascinating. So I've been getting into Croatian lawyers in a big way. And this is my favourite, Hinko Hinkovic. Anyway, he had learnt firsthand the arbitrary nature of Habsburg justice in the Balkans. And I think this is a, a classic example to always use with um, historians who say, yes, but the, the rule of law was all very good in Habsburg Empire before 1914. He'd been the leading defence lawyer in the very famous Zagreb treason trial of 1909. Fifty serfs were put in the dock, and he himself was then imprisoned when he tried to secure a public pardon for those convicted in that trial. So when war broke out, Hinkovich rather naturally felt he was a marked man. Both Masaryk and Hinkovich duly spread in the West the image of a despotic Habsburg regime, which must be toppled if peace was to return to Europe. And with typical hyperbole, Hinkovich, for example, in a lecture in Paris in 1915, was claiming that 19,000 Croats had already been executed since the start of the war. It was graphic imagining of the Habsburg yoke, preached by radical emigres who, if they had failed, if they had failed, would have been eccentric footnotes in the history of the Great War, and we wouldn't really be talking about them at all. Instead, by 1918, their portrayal of the empire as a prison would become mainstream in Allied propaganda, and in the post-war world, it became the standard image, too, in the victorious successor state. But for much of the war, having talked about those people who were really um, unconditional in wanting an exit. For much of the war, this unconditional stance, this crusade for independence, was not to be found at home in Austria-Hungary. Certainly there are always exceptions. Uh, the Czech, Václav Klovac, you see here. Um, uh, before the war, he was already a traitor, certainly. He'd been plotting with Russia, and he was duly imprisoned by the Austrian authorities uh, in September 1914. Here you see him being taken off to prison. Um, but most politicians and most civilians did not share this radical stance. Um, for the elitist politicians in Croatia, for example, their regional assembly in Zagreb, they had, a, they had a regional assembly, a regional parliament, that continued in session during the war. Um, this on the left here shows the opening of that parliament earlier in 1914. It continued on through the war. And this and the relative lack of army interference in Croatia, I think helps explain why so many Croatian leaders hesitated for so long to turn against the empire, because Croatian autonomy, devolution was still there. There was a kind of normality about living in Croatia during the war compared to some other parts. I mean, the, the food situation was not too bad. For Czech and Slovene leaders, too, there was a pre-war tradition in Austria of political activism. What I mean by that is a steady interaction with the Austrian government in Vienna in order to secure social and national benefits for their regions. But by 1917, I think we can say fairly clearly that in many Czech and Slovenian communities, certainly among their politicians, there was a clear shift in attitude far more critical, they became far more critical of the imperial leadership and its mission to save the empire. So how do we explain this? It's not very simple. Certainly it fed off war weariness and the grinding impact of the Allied economic blockade in Austria. And when you go and look at um, uh, uh, censor reports from around the empire, particularly around Austria, you see the famine that existed, particularly in the south, in Dalmatia, Dalmatian coast, Istria, those kind of areas, Vienna a bit as well, uh, people were literally starving. 
But we do know also that many Czechs were intrinsically grudging about the war. Um, they were not subscribing to the war loans. Um, I feel quite. Um, I could. I, I feel quite strongly about this. There's been a, an attempt recently to try and turn this over and say, you know, oh, uh, Czechs were actually very, very patriotic. Well, they weren't very patriotic. They were rather grudging about the war. Many Czechs. You can contrast this with. Um, if you think about who subscribed to war loans, which was one of the tests for loyalty, really, in the empire, you put your savings, your money into war loans. Who did subscribe? Franz Kafka was thinking of subscribing, if you look at his diaries, which is very interesting. It tells you quite a lot about Franz Kafka. Um, he's not just um, uh, oblivious to the war. He has a certain loyalty, I, I've argued, in things I've written. Many Czechs would not do that. I'm generalizing, but there were, there, that was what was known at the time, that the Czech region of the monarchy was not so good at putting their money into war loans for the war. And this was fully mirrored, this fully mirrored the lackluster patriotic commitment of most Czech politicians who were not prepared to come out publicly and say they supported the war. We can give glimpse, I think, some, if we're trying to get at ideas about the morale during the war, we can glimpse some truths about this morale, I think, from summaries of postal correspondence, which were put together periodically by the Austrian censor officials. And the censor, of course, was always very, very busy um, checking. You can see a few notes on this postcard where the censor is written, you know, should this go ahead? And anyway, they were, there's a whole range of censors, and they were spot checking the post. Um, they could only spot check it because they didn't have enough people to uh, monitor the millions of letters. But these censors had to put together periodic summaries of what they thought they'd come up with in their um, uh, censoring of the uh, uh, correspondence. These reports regularly noted that although ordinary Croats and ordinary Slovenes might be materially demoralised, Croats and Slovenes, they were still fairly reliable and at heart Kaiser Troy, loyal to the Kaiser. But this was never the case with the Czech population. By late 1915, the censors uh, were being asked to weigh up more carefully the depth of Czech patriotism. And they were, um, the authorities were basically saying to the censors, um, oh, we want to know a little bit more positively about you know, what is the, the, the level of Czech patriotism, because you're just sending us negative reports. The censors, what they found was a wariness of ordinary Czechs about actually putting in writing their views. The complaints the censors felt were often very coded. And the underlying tone seemed overwhelmingly hostile to the state. As one censor concluded, this is early 1916, and I quote, a Czech generation has grown up which publicly recognises only the kingdom of Bohemia as its fatherland, sees the German nation as the irreconcilable enemy, and is at its core completely alienated from the Austrian state." Unquote. When it came to symbols of Czech patriotism, the authorities also felt that the Bohemian lion was used far more uh, than the Habsburg double-headed eagle. What seems clear is that for ordinary subjects across the monarchy, of course it was material hardship and war weariness that mattered most. And by 1917, this was quite clear in all the censor reports. Most letters were about war weariness and about uh, um, famine or food crisis. In contrast, basic for alienating the Czech or the Slovene political classes was the character of the Austrian wartime regime. This was a time where the Austrian parliament, the Reichsrat, was closed, unlike almost every other parliament uh, in Europe of a great power. Austrian Parliament was closed from 1914 to 17. So this cut off any public forum for complaint or compromise. And two major aspects also marked this period of 1914 to 17 as a period of darkness. In Czech, you would use the word temno, in darkness. Uh, and this, this is how it was recounted in post-war mythology. This was an era of persecution which Czech nationalists in the 1920s and 30s would say uh, was a repetition of the nation's last traumatic era of darkness in the 17th century. And they played on this a lot, the era of darkness. So two major aspects of this kind of darkness. The first aspect was the military regime imposed in Austria until 1917, 
which Hungary and Croatia largely escaped. And Peter Judson may have talked about this two weeks ago, I don't know. But recent research has very much stressed that this meant the widespread imposition of martial law across the Austrian half of the empire. And crucially, all political crimes, including treason, which of course I'm obsessed with, um, were now subject to military jurisdiction. So this was a license for arbitrary, um, arbitrary justice. You could just be picked up, basically. If, you were, if the military thought you were involved in a political crime of some kind, then you could just be arrested. So in the South, there were mass arrests of Slovene community leaders, veteran politicians like Franz Grafenauer. In the North, the military, although Czech regions were not actually in the war zone, so were not effectively under the military, but the military still had carte blanche there to arrest and intern anyone um, who they suspected of political crime. So they pounced on any Czech traitors or people they thought were traitors. The most famous case was um, this Czech politician, Karol Kramarsz, one of the key poli Czech politicians of the early 20th century. He was just arrested. He was put on, he was in prison for about um, six months, and then he was put on trial for six months on a constructed charge, um, and he was given the death penalty um, and imprisoned in this um, kind of forbidding uh, prison you see here on the right. And this on the left actually shows the announcement of the death penalty on Kramash by a uh, Czech newspaper published in Paris. So they got to know about it and they published this news about the death penalty on Kramash. He, it was commuted, his death penalty, but um, he's still locked up um, into 1917. So these arrests certainly formed the main basis for the later Bastille legend. Uh, although we might say that most ordinary Czechs or Slovenes were only tangentially uh, affected in their everyday lives by, by this. And the second aspect of this dark period of darkness, I think we should say, was just as important um, because it sabotaged any national dialogue. And this was what we could call the radical German course which the Austrian government began to pursue during the war. We know that the war, this war eventually radicalized Slav politics, but it did exactly the same for German leaders, long insecure about their national position in Austria, for, for decades felt they were on the defensive. They saw the war as a unique opportunity to push through some kind of full German solution for Austria. Already by Christmas 1914, some Ch uh, German politicians had hurried to Berlin to talk about a customs union, hinting at a pan-German Europe. Six months later, a German-Austrian nationalist agenda was taking shape at home. The plan in this was that German would be made the state language in Austria. Austria would then be restructured. You would lop off certain provinces, Galicia up in the northeast, Dalmatia in the south, you'd lock them off or give them special devolution so that Czechs and Slovenes in the centre, more in the centre, could always be outvoted by a German majority. And then, of course, the extra element to this German course is that we are tied to Kaiser's Germany. So that's the German radical course, in effect, those three, three, three parts. So this radical programme, and we might say this is perhaps a betrayal of the Empire's mission to work for all its peoples, this, this radical programme was what faced Czech and Slovene politicians by early 1917. It was already on the cards there in 1916, um, as we shall see. The key point here is that the Austrian government in Vienna seemed to be set on trying to push through this German solution. The Austrian government in Vienna seemed to back this solution. They were uh, particularly speaking to German leaders and Polish leaders and ignoring other uh, national politicians. So the national leaders who were ignored reacted. When in mid-1917 the Austrian parliament was suddenly recalled by the new Emperor Karl, Franz Joseph of course died in late 1916, the new Emperor Karl wanted to rule as a constitutional monarch, he recalled the Austrian parliament. When this happened, both the Czech and the South Slav political clubs pushed their demands. And now they, uh, they basically put forward dramatic alternatives to the German course and totally incompatible with it. These are the so-called May declarations given in Parliament by Czechs, Poles, South Slavs and other 
other peoples. They demanded a full federal restructuring of the empire. There should be a Czechoslovak unit up in the north. In the south, there should be a South Slav or some kind of Yugoslav unit there. And in both these cases, we see the main Czech or Slovene leaders drawing stark lessons from the years of darkness. It was insecurity, but it was also this long-term idealism, which they'd all been kind of uh, fed on from uh, with their mother's milk. It was this that pushed them in a direction of national unity with respectively with the Slovaks or with other South Slavs. So just thinking about these declarations, can we then characterize these leaders still as activists prepared to talk to Vienna? Well, yes, I think we can. They did still expect at this point some dialogue with the Austrian government. They still envisaged a future in this empire and they were not suddenly setting up conditions for exit at this point. So I'm going to move into this kind of second part of my talk, which is going to be focusing on this shift towards radical rhetoric, violent rhetoric, and then exit. And because I'm going to move quite fast now on the road to exit, um, I think it's worth us pausing a moment at this critical juncture of May 1917, because the more I've studied this, the more I think this is a critical juncture. I mean, you could, you could possibly pick a lot of other critical junctures, but I'm going to make a kind of case for this as a critical juncture. Because in retrospect, we might see this as Vienna's last real chance, Austria's last real chance for meaningful dialogue with the Czech and the South Slav leaders. Now, of course, they, they were putting forward revolutionary acts. They were demanding a federal empire in place of what had existed before, Austria-Hungary, two parts of the <coughs> empire, control a parliament in Vienna, a parliament in Hungary, in Budapest, with a lot of, a lot of devolution to the Hungarians. So this was a revolu certainly revolutionary in what they were suggesting. But even so, the Austrian <coughs> government at this time, which was under Prime Minister Klan Martinitz, who you see there on the left, gave no glimmer of compromise at all. What did Klan Martinitz say, say in his uh, reply in Parliament? His public reply was very vague. My programme is Austria, he said. And he characterised this Austria as, I quote, the proud, solid, solid and everlasting castle of its peoples. <coughs> so this was a reply which really antagonised the Czech and Slovene leaders into sharpening their rhetoric. Because to them, uh, the notional image of an Austrian castle, a burg, easily morphed into a prison, Gefängnis in German. In Parliament, you can see it here, the Slovene leader, Anton Koroshets, spoke and recalled all those who had been locked up over the past three years. A sacrifice on the home front, he said, which would never be forgotten. According to Koroshets, the Prime Minister's Austria was a false Austria, a creeping German state that had jettisoned the essence of Austrian Staatsgedanken, um, thoughts about the state, uh, that basically Austria betrayed that mission. The South Slavs, Koroshet said, were not now calling for a break with the monarchy, but they were demanding a break with the German bureaucracy and German control over Slovenian regions. This was a stance echoed fully by Czech politicians in even stronger language, and the language begins to be ratcheted up now. Adolf Stransky, Czech politician, recalled Czech traitors like Kramash, who were still languishing in prison, and then he recalled the old adage of Palatsky from the 19th century, that the Czechs would outlive Austria. So here, I think, here we have a hint of conditional exit, or at least a threat, that any Czech belief in the Habsburg state was fast disappearing. It's true that a constitutional route was not dead, and not least the calling of the Austrian parliament was evidence of that, um, and so was an easing of press censorship under the, the regime of Emperor Karl. And in July, July 1970, Emperor Karl even announced a general amnesty for political prisoners. So traitors like Kramarsch or Václav Klovach, these people I've mentioned, um, Grafenauer, they, they reappeared in society. They came out, they were released. But this sudden opening up of a public discourse was fatal 
if the Austrian and Hungarian governments then stayed committed to German or a Hungarian national causes and refused any change at all. So this rigidity, this rigidity and the absence of any real Habsburg alternative being put forward um, would, from this point, drive national leaders at different speeds towards an unconditional exodus. I want to understand this by comparing, just briefly, the South Slav and the Czech populations um, who were mobilised in the final year of the war. Um, the political rhetoric was ratcheted up, becoming ever more aggressive and populist. And this, of course, did not happen in a vacuum. By 1918, the public discourse was fully internationalised. From the East, we have Bolshevik slogans about revolution and self-determination. From the West, we get allied promises, British, French, Italian promises of liberation and democracy. So foreign propaganda began to invade the empire. And this radical rhetoric from abroad, we might say the rhetoric of the emigres, uh, chimed with the populist language at home, boosting those who wanted change and encouraging them to take further risks in their demands. As we shall see, the Czech exit was soon unconditional. But I'm going to first say a little bit about the South Slav exit. I shall be focusing on the Slovenes. This was far less predictable, dependent on the gradual closing down of any viable Habsburg option. By the winter of 1917, South Slav politicians in Austria were ceasing to use guarded language. According to one, I quote, how we've been treated in this war exceeds anything that has occurred in the history of humanity. Another spoke about the reign of terror, which he said was comparable only to the Spanish Inquisition or the atrocity of St. Bartholomew night, Bar Bartholomew's night. I think that's Catherine de' Medici, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, but most striking was how from the autumn, a major part of the Slovene leadership acted as a real pioneers in challenging the empire and demanding Yugoslav unification. A key event here was when the Bishop of Ljubljana, who we see here on his horse, Anton Jeglic publicly spoke out for the May Declaration for some South Slav unification. His statement did not reflect dynastic disloyalty. He wasn't being disloyal to the Habsburgs. Rather, he was anxious about the Slovenes' future, and he, we know from his diaries, he felt a duty to speak out for his Catholic flock. So for him, God, nation, empire, they were still closely in his mind, in his mindset. But anyway... His example led to a frenzied national mobilisation in the South. Councils or individuals, especially women, women play a big part here, began to collect signatures for the May Declaration. Activists like Anton Koroshevs, who we see here, began to hold mass rallies. So this declaration movement, as it was called, was a real plebiscite for change, like perhaps none, no other in the empire. It spilt out of the Slovene lands, down into Dalmatia, into Croatia, a bit into Bosnia. And when we analyse this movement, we find there are a real mixture of emotions and frustrations. For many, the declaration became the catch-all solution to their everyday misery. Many, too, grasped something of the political context. We know this, for example, has been a really fascinating diary of a Slovenian housemaid that has just been uncovered. Uh, and you suddenly find this woman is very well informed and she's kind of gradually, her political views are kind of come into the diary. Uh, she knows what's going on, basically. Um, women, as I said, were very prominent. This is a, a cartoon of 1917-18, um, satirical. Women were known by the authorities to be wearing lockets with Koroshevs' portrait in the locket. And this was a message which offered many people both change and continuity. It offered people future security, but it also offered them some continued existence within the empire. So if you think of uh, the position of Slovenia, or Slovenes, um, the geopolitical threats for Slovenes from, let's say, a German state or from Italian aggression from the south, this was going to be surmounted, these were going to be surmounted not by destroying, but by restructuring this empire. The language of this declaration movement, this grassroots movement, is very suggestive. I'll give you some examples of what was um, in the petitions or in the, at the rallies. For example, people called out, we want to be free in a great Habsburg Yugoslavia. 
Long live the beloved Habsburg dynasty and lucky Yugoslavia under its glorious scepter. That's how it started. Only from April 1918 did the tone begin to shift as it became clear that the imperial authorities opposed any Yugoslav solution. The censor, the Austrian censor, slowly picked up on a much more radical Yugoslav mood across the south, one that the state could not control. And by mid-August 1918, when Koroshet spoke at a major rally in Ljubljana, he was still referencing the May Declaration, in other words, some kind of Yugoslav unity, but he no longer mentioned the Habsburg monarchy. So by that time, for ordinary Slovenes and Slavs down the Dalmatian coast, I would argue a popular basis had been laid for exiting the, the empire. The censor observed by September, the people are convinced that the declaration will be realised and therefore expect a better future. So I think this popular mobilisation and consensus in the last 12 months does a lot to explain the relative Slovenian stability after that region entered the new state of Yugoslavia. It wasn't a national revolution, though I probably agree with Peter Judson here, but it was a strong degree of popular mobilisation which had taken place. And we can compare that usefully with Croatia, where a great gulf existed between the urban elite and the restless peasantry. Here, in Croatia, many Croatian politicians who were opportunistic right to the end were very slow to abandon their historic state-right ambitions within the empire. Most still expected a Habsburg future because they had not really experienced the Habsburg Bastille. But when at the very end of the war, a small elite group of politicians from Croatia finally made the leap into Yugoslavia, what, what one, uh, Stepan Radic, one of the Croat leaders, uh, he called it drunken geese uh, moving in a fog. Um, when this happened, it was soon clear that they had not carried most of the population with them. So there followed in Croatia after 1918 peasant violence, but also a perpetual Croatian problem which persistently destabilised the new state of Yugoslavia. One veteran politician had warned in the summer of 1918, I quote, great swathes of our people still act more according to their dark instincts than under the influence of this great Yugoslav idea. So I would say the Croatian exit is pretty dysfunctional, really. The real contrast to this dysfunctional exit was surely the Czech populist experience, what I would call Czechsit. Um, hopefully will not happen, but anyway... Um, while Czechs shared characteristics with the Slovenes, they fed off each other in fact, the Czech leaders seen by 1918 the, le the least equivocal, the most determined in their anti-Habsburg behaviour. Many ordinary Czechs of course were bystanders to the national performance, but a significant number, well educated, probably the most one of the most literate populations in the empire the Czechs, <coughs> They had long bought into a national mindset and they would respond quickly to a mixture of social national grievances. By the middle of 1918, one government agent who visited Prague sensed the dangerous agitation at work among many Czechs and he witnessed a lot, lots of rallies and demonstrations on May Day, etc. He said, he reported to Vienna, they might not understand high politics, but they were reacting to the regime's autocratic and unjust behaviour. They knew what was unjust. And, he noted in this report, it could be seen even at Prague's National Theatre. During one performance of Smetana's opera, Libouche, which you see here, which I managed to get quite a nice picture of this, during one performance of Smetana's opera, somebody jumped up onto the stage and shouted out, Slavs for themselves! Down with Karl, down with Willy, and the Austrian scarecrow. So the, the Austrian censor suggested that ordinary Czechs were enthusiastically following their politicians' tactics. And from late 1917, it's clear from politicians' diaries, the Czech activists, those who still favoured talks with Vienna, were being fast crowded out by national radicals who had personally experienced a Habsburg prison. So these kind of amnestied politicians like Kramarsch and Klobach take control of the Czech political agenda. They, of course, detested Vienna's German course and they were simply emboldened by the emperor's amnesty 
of July 1917. So Czech politics now, from the mid-1917, entered really a phase of what one historian called aggressive passivity. Early in 1918, there's a famous Czech uh, epiphany declaration, as it's called, um, which is really a statement of Czechoslovak independence. It wasn't explicitly anti-Habsburg, but the trend was very clear. Here is a quote from it. The Czechoslovak people want to live in their own Czechoslovak state, free and independent, united and consolidated. And this was accompanied by very radical rhetoric. Germany was now like a boa constrictor around Austria. The war had seen an extermination of Slavs. One Czech politician noted in a fiery speech in Parliament, the Habsburg state had not fulfilled its historic mission, rather it had been persecuting its own peoples, one could not expect any justice in the future. So already, I think, by early 1918, the chance of Chexit was very high if Austria lost the war. Um, a few months later, uh, mid-1918, the Emperor, Emperor Karl, privately rebuked Czech leaders for their ingratitude for not issuing a pro-Habsburg proclamation when he had issued this political amnesty for them. The Czechs responded very cheekily. It was the monarch who had broken his promise in 1917 by following a German course in Austria. So I'm not one of these people who thinks that um, Emperor Karl should be, um, um, I think he has been canonised, hasn't he? Anyway, uh, that he should be made a saint. Um, anyway, the open political debate in this last year of the war therefore allowed national politicians to contest any monopoly by the state on justice or morality. And those, the interesting thing, and obviously I'm interested in this because of my work on treason, those whom the state had called traitors had now become the heroes, and they now turned that label on the state itself, or that <coughs> accusation on the state itself. It was the Habsburg state which was the traitor, which had betrayed its peoples and no longer deserved allegiance. So I'm coming to my conclusion here. And I just want to say lastly a little bit about summing up a bit about the exit and some of the expectations which are aroused by this violent rhetoric. I've tried to stress here the phenomenon of staggered exits from the empire to explain why some regions were better prepared than others for the transition to new statehood. Um, and I was given the remit to talk about the Czechs in the South Side, but if you, if you think about the Poles, by mid-1918, um, reports by, uh, by Habsburg authorities basically said Poles, they no longer feel part of the Austrian state. That's talking about educated Poles, certainly. But of course it's true that the real confluence of this, these exits, the causing the final disintegration, only took place in October 1918, only then with the breakdown of Habsburg illegitimacy with the military defeats, of course, at the front, did Croatian, Slovak, Ukrainian leaders fully react and realised suddenly that they must respond in kind to these other regional exits. Everything was going downhill, they had to respond. And perhaps most devastating was the impact of the collapse on many Germans and Hungarians. They, unlike many Czechs, I would say, were not prepared mentally for this catastrophe. Or in the case of German nationalists, of course, they put their faith in this radical German course, which now lay in ruins. Many, of course, would wake up in November 1918 to find themselves in new states with new borders. In the new Czechoslovakia, for example, we have one nice example of a female youth leader who wrote down in her diary, what will become of our Deutsch Bermeland, of our German Bohemian people? A depressing feeling, a dark presentiment holds us all spellbound. Our people are in danger. So that's just a youth leader, a German woman youth leader in Czechoslovakia. What I've tried to show is that in the last year of the war, we see a radical public discourse, especially in the Austrian half of the empire, with competing and contradictory agendas for the future. Hopes there were, but especially fears, and these were raised to fever pitch by national leaders, demanding change, rejecting the governance of the empire. Many of them used graphic metaphors and violent rhetoric to describe their wartime treatment, and the image of a prison, a Bastille, gained traction specifically because it did match the severity of military rule in the early years of the war. 
But I would say that by 1918, by the last year of the war, this idea of a prison had become a broader metaphor, which was used by nationalists to explain how their people were trapped in a vice or enslaved. This kind of language is also very much there. Um, because the regime refused to reform, and it also gave people no security either. And I just a little... Uh, actually, sorry, this is a picture from Zagreb showing you the, um, uh, the events at the end of the war. But I just a little slight diversion before I finish is this colourful rhetoric inside the empire now also harmonised with the blunt anti-Habsburg propaganda which was being sent over by the Allies. Um, this goes back to my research years ago, but basically Allied propaganda, particularly on the Italian front. And here we see some of the leaflets which were being starting to flood the empire, which were being sent over. They were particularly in lovely colours so that um, you would notice them and pick them up. And if you're Polish, you're Czech, or your Serb is good enough, you could read that the Polish one is telling you about the Polish Golgotha, which, Golgotha, which is there now uh, described. Serbs here are warned of a new Kosovo disaster from 1389 about to happen if they don't desert. And Czechs in the middle were reminded with the images of Jan Hus from the 14th, 15th century that uh, uh, the Czech experience was a long history of imprisonment and sacrifice. This is all about the martyrdom of, uh, of Jan Hus. So these, these very much match the, um, the, the rhetoric inside the empire and play on it. Um, certainly there were uplifting images. There would be a bright future that would come with national liberation. But as with Brexit, the fundamental spur for change was negativity. Uh, the empire had failed in its historic mission. It now offered a very dangerous future. Uh, and this, was, this, I think, was a powerful message which gained its edge from the wartime traumas and particularly the intense campaigning of 1918. But I would always stress here, and I could always talk about this later, it was not caused solely by the war. It drew heavily on pre-war grievances about injustice, discrimination in the so-called Habsburg Reichstag. I'm saying that a lot because some things which have been written recently keep telling us that the Habsburg rule of law was so perfect before 1914. <coughs> Lastly, and I will end very soon, what about the long-term impact of this exaggerated rhetoric from the hothouse of 1918? Well, satirical cartoons of the time suggested the joy of some leaving the prison and the disappointment, confusion or anger of others left behind in the mass exodus. So here we have a nice Hungarian cartoon from just after the war, which shows Miss Hungary being escorted out of, out of the castle, we might say. And you can see this old crone in the back who is supposed to be Austria. And the slogan is, God be with you, auntie. I'm now going home and I'll never ever be thinking of you again. Um, so we've got hope and vision with Miss Hungary, probably rather Miss, Miss, um, misjudged, and um, Austrian dismay, of course. So what's clear is that everywhere, unrealistic expectations have been raised about the post-war world as a new era of peace and security. Of course, we know these ideals were not realised because the Habsburg War um, has been succeeded by new types of conflict over the future of the region. Effectively, the violent language of 1918 was transformed into different civil wars um, after 1918. So I would say the rhetoric of 1918 sets up very dangerous benchmarks for idealistic national goals. Um, I have Brexit in my mind here as well. And many in the successor states of the 20s would feel these were not achieved. These goals were not achieved. And this applied to right-wing nationalists on the winning side, Czechs, Poles. It also, of course, applied even more to those who now were labelled as the vanquished, the defeated, the Hungarians, the Sudeten German nationalists, who felt themselves now locked into their own prison, in their own straitjacket of the peace settlement. So the prison metaphor, or at least, um, or at least the lively discourse about state injustice, continued. And in these states in the 1920s, 1930s, this was appropriated not just by the victors to justify their liberation narrative, as we've seen, the, the, the image of the Bastille, but by many individuals who now felt a sense of deja vu that the flawed Habsburg rule of law still existed, 
there wasn't a, a sudden change into a, a, a world of milk and honey and justice. So we find that some national leaders in the 20s, here we've got two, the Slovak Andrei Klinka, the Croat Stepan Radic, these two saw the new states of Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia as illegitimate because they did not deliver on expectations. And both these two were soon locked up as traitors, just as they had been in the old Habsburg Empire. <coughs> so for some, this figurative Bastille continued within the borders of the new Europe, within the borders of the, the new Eastern Europe of the 1920s, and so, of course, did a violent rhetoric which I would argue came directly out of the, Habs the last Habsburg War and the hopes and fears of 1918. So thank you very much.